from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When you think about the imaginative, creative, young thinkers in the conservative world in our country today, one of the first names you think of is Raihan Salam. Uh, Raihan is the executive editor of the National Review. He's a columnist at Slate. Uh, he's a contributing editor at National Affairs, a fellow at the National Review Institute, and an incredibly fertile mind. And I'd say all these things even if he didn't graduate from the same high school I did. I had a chance to sit down with Raihan, who's been a fellow at the Institute of Politics, We covered a lot of ground from the election of 2016 to the problem of economic mobility and uh, institutionalized poverty in this country. Raihan, Salam, you're the son of immigrants. Uh, I'm the son of immigrants. Yours from Bangladesh, mine from Eastern Europe. You're a, a native of New York City. I'm a native of New York City. We both went to the same high school. You're a graduate of Stuyvesant High School. I'm a graduate of Stuyvesant <laughs> High School. Uh, but I'm a liberal and you're a conservative. What the hell happened to you? I suppose... I was always a bit of a contrarian, and when I was a teenager, I met some students who came from families very different from mine. I grew up in a household that was, I guess, liberal, not in any active kind of way, but in kind of a reflexive way. I actually learned much later in life that my mother was less liberal than I had always assumed, uh, but I grew up in this very liberal milieu, and when I was a teenager, I met What a part of New people. York were you? I grew up in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I grew up in uh, Kensington. Uh, from nine until I left home for college. And I grew up in Borough Park, a neighborhood that has changed quite a lot. I mean, all of New York City has changed since I was a kid. Well, Brooklyn uh, is Brooklyn in particular. And particularly these kind of ethnic outer borough neighborhoods. uh, There's been more change than you assume, because what you read about in the papers is the kind of gentrifying neighborhoods, uh, Brownstone, Brooklyn. But actually further out, I mean, in a way, that's been just as much change, if not more, of a different kind. Um, But uh, I met these kids who had views I'd never encountered before. I mean, I, I really didn't know that many observant Christians, for example. I had never met someone who was pro-life. So meeting people with these views um, was a big deal for me. And, and it turns out some of them were my and friends. Where, where did you meet them? Just in high school through debate. I remember one kid I met, the, actually the first kid I ever met who expressed pro-life sentiments was actually a kid who was a pacifist um, who came from this very kind of bohemian left-wing alternative household. Uh, And he was also a a vegan. Uh, But it was just, you know, stuff that was not on my radar at all. So high school did a lot to really um, widen my perspective. And then, of course, I met kids who were, you know, let's say more religiously observant, more straightforwardly conservative, who kind of stuck up for themselves. Uh, You know, they were a small minority, and they kind of, you know, stuck up for their convictions. And I wouldn't say I, I, you know, agreed with every single thing they had to say, but I started thinking differently about people who didn't share in the political consensus of my neighborhood or my, you know, broader social milieu, I started to think, you know, maybe some of these guys have some reasonable things to say. Uh, They certainly do a good job of sticking up for their views. um, And, you know, that was a big part of it, just encountering people outside of my immediate experience. Why'd your folks come here? They had different reasons. Uh, My mother 
came uh, because she thought it would be better for my father. My father is the one who really wanted to come, though it was my mother who had the kind of skills that the United States decided it wanted uh, in the in the mid nineteen seventies. What what were they? Well, my mother uh, is a renal dietitian. She recently retired. Uh, she actually she's the kind of person who had she been born. Four or five years later, her life would have been very, very different. Uh, she was an amazing student, and uh, you know she was on the kind of track to become a physician and maybe to become a you know my sisters would always say she would have become a university professor she would have done any number of things but uh, you know she kind of came of age at this time when there was a lot of political turmoil, a lot of political chaos. Uh, she grew up in this funny household her father was a Proto-feminist type. In Bangladesh, that's mm-hmm. right. Well, what was then Pakistan? Uh, mm-hmm. Her father was a quirky guy who was one of the only—he was actually the first Muslim, I believe, or so my mother claims, uh, to have graduated from the faculty of law at Calcutta University. Uh, and he was just a very broad-minded guy who had um, you know, two daughters and two sons, but he, uh, he really believed uh, in education for women, and he was particularly close to my mother. So she was reluctant to leave. Uh, my father, on the other hand— He's the kind of person for whom living in a big city and a big anonymous city, just, you know, kind of being outside of that, you know, very traditional tight knit kind of family was something that he wanted to do. When I was growing up, I remember just he just loved being in a big city and just walking around and the mix and the diversity of people. So, But he, why America? There, there are a lot of big cities in the world. That's true. My father uh, was a student. He um, was a graduate student in the United States. He had gone I to see. Indiana University, not intending to stay. Went back, but then when he went back, I suppose he felt a little bit held back, um, not even so much in a kind of narrow professional kind of sense. It was more socially. So it's one of these things where, you know, I guess the classic story you always hear is that, oh, you know, you came for economic opportunity, and I'm, I'm sure there was some of that. But as with every immigrant, there was a deeply personal story. I mean, who uproots themselves in that way? It takes them away from um, all of these family ties. And that's a thing that can be very painful for people, too. It's a very difficult thing, and, and it's uneven. And, you know, you often have one spouse who wants to do it, one who doesn't, and, you know, what have you. And there are all kinds of complexities that grow out of that. Do you think, um, plainly, and what did your dad end up doing here? He did a lot of different things. Uh, you know, he did a lot of odd jobs early on. He wound up uh, passing the CPA exam, uh, became an accountant. He was a public employee. He worked for New York State uh, for some years. Uh, but it's his story is pretty interesting, too. I mean, for both of them, they didn't really know anyone when they first arrived. Uh, and then a few years, maybe three, four years after they got to the country, they formed a very tight-knit circle of friends with these other immigrants who are from India, but from uh, West Bengal. So they also spoke Bengali. Um, And it's the way these things work. I mean, those were people, you know, my father was a very smart guy. My mother's a very smart woman, but they didn't know the ropes. They didn't know, how do I navigate the system? How do I navigate these different institutions? Uh, And, you know, then they found people who could help them do that. And then my parents both helped lots of other people do that themselves, particularly my father through his work, but my mother too in her own way. Um, And that's something I think in social policy in general. I mean, forget about immigration, period. But when you think about the African-American migration to the south side of this great city, Chicago, and you think about, you know, the people who did a little bit better than other people, and oftentimes it was people who kind of had these ties to other people from their county, their town. Uh, You know, here, there's still the sense, people who are third-generation Chicagoans still have a sense of, you know, kind of which part of the Deep South their folks came from. So that matters a lot. Yeah. I So, um, you know, as the son of an immigrant, 
Um, you know, I really take pride in America as a destination for immigrants and the fact that people all over the world want to be here, want to come. And my my sense, and based on my own experience and, my, and observation, is that one of the great strengths of this country is that people come with big dreams and they try and live those dreams out. And I suspect you share that uh, view. So how, how, how do you process the immigration debate now? I know you, you've thought a lot about how demographically, how different uh, components of our society react to each other. But it seems to me this is a great strength of our country, but it's not viewed that way and uh, by a lot of folks, and particularly a lot of folks or a faction of folks within uh, the Republican Party, not exclusively. How do you process all of that? I would say my own views about this question are pretty complicated and have grown more so over the years uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, I believe that when you look at the broad sweep of American history, we're actually in a pretty unique period when it comes to immigration. There are a lot of folks, a lot of very smart people who are drawn to these analogies. You know, it's basically the same as it was 100 years ago, etc. And I don't think that's actually true for lots of important reasons. Now, that doesn't mean, ergo, okay, then we shut the borders because it's different. That's not what I think at all. But I do think it's important to be sensitive to these changes in context. And I also think there's a tendency on the part of Americans on the right and the left to be excessively romantic about this country. So, you know, I feel as though I love America. Um, but I also, I guess I don't think of America as entirely unique and different from every other society in the world. There are actually many affluent market democracies that accept immigrants uh, in pretty large numbers. There are lots of settler societies like ours. And I do believe that looking to the experience of these other societies, learning from them, and also learning what are our own limitations? What are we good at versus what are we bad at? And a lot of smart people, this is particularly on the left, but a lot of smart people have been alarmed, and for good reason, about what is true of Americans in the bottom fifth of our society, or you could even say the bottom two-fifths of our society. Uh, there's a lot of immobility out of the bottom two-fifths. There is a way that a lot of people from underrepresented minorities feel as though they're not included in our governing institutions. They're not included in our elite institutions. There's a sense that uh, actually it's much harder for people to climb. And I think that relates to some degree to our need to provide all Americans with adequate opportunities. And given that America is actually in this funny period of time when we're actually facing some serious challenges, I th and also we have entrenched intergenerational poverty in this country. We've had it for a long time. And finally, thank goodness, there are a lot of Americans who are thinking more, for example, about black exclusion and black poverty in new ways. You know, people have been talking about it for a long time, but I think we recognize that even now in 2015, you know, we've had an African-American president. But, you know, it's still there. It's still a huge issue. So I suppose my view is that I want to use immigration policy as a tool to help us address some of our deep-seated challenges. And that I, means I guess taking a different view, approach. I guess my view is I look at this country um, – Age, an aging country, and one of the advantages of immigration is you bring in young, younger, aspiring uh, uh, people, and that's a and you bring new energy into the country. I think that's a, a positive thing. But you raise a different point, um, and I, you know, and I, it, it concerns me a lot, which is um, 
you know, fundamental changes in the economy, which I think is a big overlay on almost everything here, you know, you're not going to turn back the wheel of time on technology or globalization. And there are great advantages to these things, but they've also changed the nature of work in a profound way. And there are a lot of jobs that are simply obsolete now that were good, solid, middle-class jobs that people without education could aspire to that don't exist anymore. Um, so, how, you know, how do we grapple with that problem? I see these issues as very closely related, actually. Yeah, they are. So if you look at, um, if you look at the foreign-born population of the United States, the median age is actually a little bit higher than the population as a whole. Your point about youth and reinvigorating the country is well taken. But we notice that some other countries like Canada and Australia, for example, you know, which have a, a more skills-based immigration policy, they're using immigration to rejuvenate themselves too, but in a way that's a little bit more sensitive to these economic dynamics. 48% of the U.S. workforce that has less than a high school diploma is foreign-born in the United States. Um, And as you know, as everyone knows, as the president knows, as kind of, you know, lots of people who thought about these problems, these challenges facing the labor market, will tell you that if you don't have a high school diploma, you're going to face some pretty serious challenges in the labor market. But beyond that, actually, your children will face very serious challenges too, even if they have access to, uh, you know, safety net programs and what have you, even if they're in a metro area where they're lucky enough to have pretty decent public services. Uh, Well, and even if you do have a high school diploma, I mean, high school diplomas are... uh have their limitations in this economy as well. absolutely, David. But I'd say that that 48% number is pretty darn significant. Uh, What percentage of the entire uh, workforce are people who don't have a high school education? Uh, That is – it's it's changed. I I, I don't want to give you a number that's incorrect, but uh, it is – It's a podcast. We can go back and change it. I believe it's around a fifth – but so forty eight percent. So you're ta- you're talking about ten percent of the workforce. Oh, absolutely, exactly, mm-hmm. and it's actually a, re- a a big chunk. When also, so if you look at the foreign born share of the workforce as a whole, it's about fifteen percent of the workforce as a whole. So it's bigger than the foreign born share of the population as a whole, um, and. When you're looking at this population, I mean, you know, these are folks who are oftentimes in the professions that are vulnerable to technological change, um, and. In a lot of them are in service pro- professions, aren't they? That's absolutely right. And what the thing that's changing is that until now, for the last 30, 40 years, we thought of the only uh, occupations that are vulnerable to technological change as manufacturing, let's say. Uh, it's not going to be in-person services. But if you look, for example, at home health aides, you know, that's a job that you know, we're going to have many more people doing this work. But the thing is that it's, it's very expensive, and it's very expensive despite the fact that wages in that sector are under extreme pressure. Yeah, they are. So – you know, my they issue, don't get paid very well, honestly. Well, no, no, exactly, exactly. They don't get paid very well. So my issue is, if we're going to deal with some of those issues along long-term care, et cetera, we are going to have to find more efficient, productive ways. So the thing is that, you know, if it's inefficient and unproductive, on the one hand, it also could mean that actually, hey, the wages are pretty good. <laughs> so we're in this kind of funny place. To make those jobs better jobs for the workers, that means that we have to make the whole sector more expensive. But for society, given that we are, as you noted earlier, an aging society, you know, that's cutting in the other direction too, right? right? So if you look at the... Um, you know, the healthcare sector. The healthcare sector, everyone agrees, the president agrees, everyone seems to say that, you know, gosh, we have a very expensive healthcare sector relative to what we get. On the other hand, it's a huge creator of working in middle class jobs in America. I mean, those things, they go together, right? So the best case scenario is that you have jobs that are high wage, but also high productivity. And that's 
kind of it's kind of tough to get to that point unless you have lots of technological investment, unless you have workers who have good training and good skills. But again, then what happens to those workers who have very low levels of literacy and numeracy? We're not really thinking of all of these issues comprehensively. We're not yeah, thinking about how no. they interact. Well, with each I think other. one of the great problems we have, frankly, is that we're 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 managing to quarterly reports and we're governing to the next election and sort of long-term kinds of considerations tend to be sacrificed to short-term uh, to short-term goals here. And, you know, I, I, I like to tell the story about uh, Lincoln and uh, who I think was our greatest president, uh, led us through the Civil War, emancipated the slaves. But the remarkable thing about Lincoln is at the same time, he laid the groundwork for the Transcontinental Railroad. He uh, started the National Science Foundation to spur uh, scientific discovery and innovation. He started land-grant colleges so people could get uh, higher education, even if they weren't of uh, extraordinary means. Incredible visionary things that laid the groundwork for a great deal of progress in this country, but uh, we seem incapable of doing those. The things you're talking about, and maybe this is where you and I disagree, uh, uh, but it seems to me they require some societal action, they, that, that these things don't, you know, a concerted effort at education and training requires uh, us to do something uh, as a society, and government has to play a role in that infrastructure is something that requires uh, uh, government activity. And, you know, I think you, one of the things about the balance sheets that, you know, about the uh, quarterly reports, I should say, that is concerning, and there was a piece in the, in the uh, Wall Street Journal about this the other day, um, companies, corporations are making fewer long-term investments, including in research and development. And so government, which has been the source of a lot of sort of basic scientific research, uh, is also cutting back. Uh, and, you know, so I'm, I'm concerned about where the impetus for these long-term kinds of um, investments and actions that we need to take is going to come from. I do disagree with a fair number of things you said, and, and you've said a lot. So I guess, um, oh, no, no, in a good way. I mean, you, you kind of, you, you, what you've done is you've outlined a view that many, if not most, smart people in the country have, and, and that's a burden for At me, At least right? you associate me with the oh, well, smart oh, people. Oh, absolutely. And, and look, that's, you know, a, that's a courtesy or extenuous fellow, <laughs> no, 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 Stuyvesant no, High no, School no, graduate. No, and, uh, and, and I've got to say, you know, kind of, it, it's something for me, too. Like, you know, sometimes you kind of wonder, you wake up and you think to yourself, gosh, you know, when I disagree with all the smart people, what does that say about me? Maybe that means I'm the one who diluted. I mean, chances are that's right, right? So I guess... We'll comment at the end on Right. There are a lot of pieces to what you've said. So even starting out with Lincoln, I believe that Lincoln was a great president, a courageous president. But if you look at something like the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, I actually believe that uh, he didn't actually pursue it in the right way. Uh, and there's a lot of pretty interesting historical work on this. If you look at this uh, great Chicago economist, Robert Fogel, he did some amazing work comparing the parts of the country where the canals were competing with the railroad and, and what have you. And then you had the West, where you had you know some subsidies, land subsidies uh, for the railroads, which then had all these captive shippers. They became predatory monopolies uh, because they grew and they didn't really have the competition. And he kind of sketched out this really interesting view, which is that, well, actually, had they grown organically, Railroads are pretty impressive. You know, lots of people would have wanted to build them. But then you also would have had 
canals competing with them. And then who knows, maybe you would have invented the horseless carriage a little bit sooner to get agricultural produce to those canals earlier on. Uh, so, I mean, there are a lot of complexities so to you this feel you know, that if you the, take that you step. You feel that the railroad system would have on its own uh, no, it's not about on, on its, its own surface. It's not on its own, David. The thing is that it's really hard to think about the counterfactual, and we tend not to, because we live in the world in which Lincoln did X, Y, and Z, and that's the way these things happened. But there are actually other societies too that built railroads. There are other societies, um, you know, where valuable agricultural knowledge spread from one place to another. So, I mean, I'd say that there are a lot of things he did that I totally endorse, including things along the lines of what you're describing: thoughtful government action for the future. But was every single one kind of well thought through? Uh, you know. Now, going to the present, if you think about infrastructure, for example, one thing that's really fascinating is that America gets far less for its infrastructure buck than pretty much any other market democracy compared to Canada and Germany. Okay, let's leave Germany aside. Canada is a country that's a lot like ours, not all that different, yada, yada. It takes about 10 years to get a permit for a, a big ticket infrastructure project in the United States. In Canada, it takes two years. Philip Howard, uh, a really bright guy who runs the Common Good Foundation, has done a lot of work on that. And so when you talk about government's role, yeah, I do think the government can do a lot of good in infrastructure, but government does a lot of bad too. And it does bad not for bad reasons, but because people think, you know, gosh, we want to have these permitting processes in place in a good, smart way. But that's not the only issue. I mean, if you look at Madrid, for example, that's a place where building about a mile of subway tunnel costs a third of what it does in the United States. Uh, London, expensive city, unionized labor, actually a more difficult place to build in a lot of ways than, than New York. Every underground project we build, every big infrastructure project is way more expensive in the United States than it is in so social probably, democratic So what you're Europe. saying is we, we need more unions? Is that what you're saying? We need stronger unions? <laughs> no, uh, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if you're thinking that, oh, well, that's the reason, that's not it. You know, you have societies with weaker unions, with stronger unions. You have societies with more government role in infrastructure, less government role in infrastructure, much less government role in infrastructure in some societies, um, you know. Tokyo has you know, one subway system that's entirely private, and their per-employee costs are the same as those of New York, but actually they have far fewer employees. They have far fewer work rules in place. So I just say that I'm talking not, about look, more you money. Know, they, yeah. You and I would probably agree. I mean, I, I think we should constantly examine um, what kinds of rules and regulations are in place. I think that there should be a and, – and, you know, we had uh, Cass Sunstein at the uh, – at the, uh, when I was in the Obama yeah. administration, and that was his function was to to really evaluate the cost benefit of uh, various rules. I think he rolled back five hundred of them while he uh, while he was there. So I don't disagree with that. What I what I do believe though is that uh, there there are investments that. Uh, that are not going to be private investments that have to be public investments. I'd say if you're getting 30 cents on the, of the, on the dollar relative to what the best practice is globally, that seems like something you want to think about. No, you about. should look at yeah. that. I'm not saying you, you shouldn't look at that. Yeah. I think also, though, if you have record low interest rates if we, as we've had for the last six or seven years and you don't make significant investments in infrastructure you're 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 missing the boat we've got two trillion dollars of pent-up infrastructure needs it's an in honest this disagreement between us i've got to say if i could get you know very low interest rates but i'm still getting 30 cents on the dollar or 80 cents on the dollar you know i feel like that's still a pretty big issue because you know taking on that debt we could take on that debt for lots 
of valuable things. There are lots of needs in this society. And that's actually, you know, one thing that I, I really strongly believe. That's part of why I started out talking about some of these human capital issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I personally think that the fact that our infrastructure spending is so lacking in productivity relative to other countries that are not in outer space, we're not talking about Mars, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, Canada's really close by, you know, you, you know, a flight there is from DC, <laughs> you know, kind of takes a couple of hours. Um, and I think that that is something we really ought to think about more rigorously. And I think the problem with our debates is that it immediately goes to this place of like, well, you're for investment and, you know, you're not for investment. Well, it's like, well, actually, maybe I am for investment, but I just think that, you know, our institutions are so bad at delivering this investment that we need to think harder about restructuring them before we start pouring more money that could be used for many other really important purposes in a country with entrenched multi-generational poverty. Yeah. Well, I would agree with you that we get into a reflexive uh, position. These debates become reflexive. But the needs are clear. So you're making the argument that we can more efficiently meet these needs. Uh, But I think what's important is to recognize that these needs exist. And uh, that, to me, seems to be something that we ought to be able to agree on. Eugene Sturley uh, at the Urban Institute, which is not a right-wing think tank by any means, uh, you know, lots of good work that lots of people across the political spectrum rely on, uh, did a really neat back-of-the-envelope calculation where he was trying to look at, you know, kind of what state, local, and federal governments are spending. And even if you're factoring tax expenditures, and just trying to give a really big picture of, you know, kind of what kind of government resources we're bringing to bear. Uh, and he, you know, he found a number in the order of an, an um, over twenty thousand uh, dollars, you know, per person, and the president uh, in his State of the Union, his last State of the Union address, proposed a few reforms that would have added about one hundred and fifty dollars to that amount of money. Now, you know, given inflation, given just lots of change, we're automatically going to be spending more. And I, by the way, don't think that's a bad thing. I think that a lot of that money in that twenty thousand dollar bucket that Sterling identified is very worth spending. But I guess I just think that adding another 150 bucks, another 200 bucks on top of that pretty substantial amount of money, I guess I think about how are you allocating those resources. And in many cases, I would argue that actually you have rich people who are getting some more of those resources than they ought to be getting, uh, as opposed to lower income people, et cetera. I think there are a lot of ways yeah. we ought to be more thoughtful about where that money goes. But I just think that there are a lot of people, including, by the way, conservatives, who really believe that the issue is at the margin. The issue is if we add another $150, another $200, uh, $200 if we kind of move that you know, a little bit, and I just don't believe it. And I think that our debates are just so focused on what do you do about that incremental 200 bucks as opposed to that huge amount of money that's being deployed right now. Uh, And I don't deny, you know, I have areas where, you know, I might be inclined to spend more, others where I might be inclined to spend less. Where would you spend more? Um, Well, there are areas where I think we're just going to have to spend more and we don't have much choice about it. When you have an immigration policy that, uh, you know, is not a skills-oriented policy, and when you have an econo- uh, you know, economic change that is actually putting less skilled people under pressure, that just means that you're going to need lots of labor-intensive services for very poor people who are being raised by parents who, who don't have very high levels of literacy and numeracy. If you look at Japan, the number of adults who have a high level of literacy and numeracy um, you know, it's quite high. So, so with low levels there, it's one out of 20. In the United States, it's one out of seven. 
Uh, and, you know, again, the kids of those adults have much a much harder time gaining skills themselves for all kinds of reasons. So I just believe that our immigration policy just bakes in that we're going to need to spend more on providing children with labor-intensive services. I guess that's part of why I believe that we need to look to Canada and but Australia and other But not just our societies. immigration policy. We, we, you talked about structural poverty oh, that's been here for generations. Absolutely, although I guess part of the issue is, and, and here's a, maybe a controversial thing to say, uh, but I personally believe that what our society uh, owes African Americans who are the descendants of slaves is different and greater than what it owes uh, people from Bangladesh, let's say, who want to move to the United States today. Um, I think that we have a special obligation in particular to deprived, excluded communities that have experienced discrimination in the past and that experience lingering discrimination in the present. Uh, and that means that, you know, when it comes to those resources, I guess I look to immigration policy as something that can help us identify people who are going to make large net contributions uh, fiscally, so that we can help people who haven't been given a fair shot, who are very much a part of our society and have been for a very long time. I take that historical obligation very seriously. So that's why I talk about that a bit. But you're right, there are much bigger issues than that. You know, there's now more Hispanic poverty in the United States than there is African American poverty. And that's going to become a much bigger issue in the future. You know, right now, it's not something we talk about that much because you work for Harold Washington. Yes. You know, we had this political class. Former mayor of Chicago. The former mayor of mayor, Chicago. First African American mayor. We we had this political class of people who were activists, who were brave, who were courageous people, who changed our society in lots of important ways, who, grew, who came from that, who were the descendants of that great migration. We don't yet have that generation of people, um, you know, from the Latino and Asian American communities, let's say. But the thing is that, you know, they're going to want a place at the table, too. And that's why I believe that it's pretty much just baked in, that we're going to have to spend more to kind of alleviate some of the, the poverty and some of the concerns that arise in this huge and how demographic would you, and change And how would you had. spend that money in a way that you feel is efficient and would actually help lift uh, these, these, these folks uh, up? Well, that is the million-dollar question, and uh, there are many— You could do it for a million, man. <laughs> We're running you for president. Oh, oh, well, I'm going to talk oh, to look. those Republicans. And I'm going to say, "Here's your guy right here. Uh, Just turned 35. You know, there, there He's are, qualified." There are a lot of there are a lot of pieces to it, and, and you know, you will not be surprised. You know, in education, uh, you know, I believe that's an area where you want more specialization. You want lots of different strategies. Um, but I'd say that you know, if you're looking at welfare safety net policies, I have lots of thoughts about that. You know, each one could be a podcast unto itself. Um, but I guess my basic view is that. We need to draw more on the strength and intelligence of diverse communities. Uh, you know, when I look at our politics right now, what I see is an older generation that looks one way and a younger generation that looks a very different way. Yeah, I agree with and, that. And a younger generation in a way that actually doesn't understand and an older generation that doesn't understand either. So we talk a lot about the older generation of how to like, you know, these people in their 60s and 70s, you know, they grew up in a different America, they don't get it, etc. That's fair. But of course, people of my generation, too, they don't get it all the time either. They don't, they don't get the scale of the demographic transformation we've experienced. Um, and also, you know, there, here's another issue that I think about a lot. Over the next 20 or so years, you're going to have over $30 trillion of wealth passed on from baby boomers like yourself to their children. Now, those baby boomers who are passing on that wealth are overwhelmingly white. Whereas 
a lot of the younger generation, you know, this is very close to a majority minority younger generation. Yes, right. And so, you know, do you believe that there are not going to be ways that our conversation about inequality and redistribution, you know, do you believe, I believe that's going to really get bound up with race well, and ethnicity I mean, in ways I mean, that I think you know, are potentially and, and, and very fraught. Another, uh, yes, and I think another manif- uh, ramification of this is we have become a very uh, we have castes in our society, and you know you, where you are born, and uh, the circumstances into which you are born are very predictive of where you'll end up, and that is uh, going only to be exacerbated by what you're talking about here. Yeah, exactly, and that's why when I look at social inequality, when I look at social and economic inequality, um, the way that I think about it is this, and there are actually a lot of social scientists pretty much entirely on the left, who've been talking about how can you have racial inequality when you don't have explicit out-and-out racism. And one of the basic mechanisms of this is that, you know, people have social networks. When you think about economic opportunities, you share them with people in your social network. Actually, in a society in which, you know, you have greater diversity and you don't really know about people who are outsiders, et cetera, you might actually become more inclined to think about, well, who do I know? Who is my third cousin? Or who did I go to the University of Chicago yeah. with or something like that? Um, you know, those relationships matter a lot. Yeah. And we also have had this big development in our society, this rise of what is called assortative mating. But you could really talk about that more broadly. People are much more How likely— How about more colloquially? People are much more likely to marry people with the same level of education that they have than had been the case in earlier eras. But also, more broadly, people are much more likely to be friends with people. So, you know, uh, you and I both have a college education. And I bet dollars to donuts that uh, you and I both, uh, you know, probably have pretty diverse friend groups, but probably a disproportionately high share of our friends are college educated, too. Right. Uh, And again, you probably have a way more diverse group of friends than most people. Well, I've had more years to work on it, too. Well, And you work in politics. and, 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 you know, I grew up in uh, I grew up in a you know kind of uh, urban neighborhood. I, I, well, I one of the like great things about being in people, politics yeah. is I've worked all over. Exactly, exactly. And I've worked but, in all kinds you, of communities. But you've so. also been around a lot of kind of college educated. No, there's no doubt about it. Narrow their worlds are right. So, so that's the challenge. You know, we when you don't have. I work at a college. Man. Exactly, and when you don't have that kind of intermingling, then that's where caste comes from. And you know, the issue with when and I just to harp on immigration for one more moment. When you're looking at immigration, you know, in the 1900s, Americans, native-born Americans had much lower levels of education, and immigrants had pretty low levels, but they were actually much closer to each other. So the intermingling was a lot more likely, particularly by the time you got to the second or third generation. Today, there's a very big gap. And because of that gap, interesting. you have I wonder about of, that. I, 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 have social I, that segregation and interesting, interesting um, observation. I, I wonder how much intermingling there actually was back then. You know because yeah, I you know there's yeah. such, there were such distinct communities uh, in New York where I grew up in other urban areas where Jews hung with Jews, Italians hung with exactly. Italians, exactly. Irish hung with David, Irish. David, you're speaking my language now. Absolutely. So there, so there was, so there was <laughs> that somewhat, scares me, so, brother. So there was somewhat more, but <laughs> but you notice that I said that I talked about when you get to the second generation, right? Because what happened in the United States is that after the late 20s, we had this severe reduction in immigration. So by the time you got to 1970, you know the foreign-born share of the population was about four and a half percent, probably the lowest share it's ever been in American history. Uh, and actually, it was during those decades in the middle of the century when we had the lowest level of inequality and you also had the highest level of intermingling because the Greek towns, the little Italy's that you remember, they actually were fading because you had people move to the suburbs. Uh, you know, you had people Well, we had a big explosion, economic explosion after World War II. But actually, even before And that, we had know, the experience in terms yeah. of intermingling, World War II itself 
was a was a was a you know a a great impetus David, for that, you're, people you're, fighting side by side. You're absolutely right, but the intermingling really intensified and accelerated in the 30s, you know, when you had a very dark economic climate, actually. So that was a time when you had a lot of that intermingling. This is a phenomenon that scholars call replenished ethnicity. There's a, uh, a sociologist at Stanford, very smart guy, uh, Tomas Jimenez, who's done a lot of really interesting work on this as it relates to Mexican-Americans, but of course that dynamic obtained in that mid-century period before, even during the darkest economic climate, partly because... You know, you have people who have a similar level of education and skill, uh, and also when you don't have new arrivals coming to replenish that old ethnic community, you know, it's interesting. If you look at different Asian American groups, Japanese Americans are far more likely to intermarry than Indian Americans, partly because, you know, the number of new Japanese American arrivals is quite small. The Japanese American community is heavily native-born, uh, whereas with Indian Americans, it's a very different story. So, you know, it's pretty simple. And this is not a value judgment. You know, kind of maybe it's a bad thing for people to intermarry. There are a lot of people, for example, the Jewish community, who believe that it's, it's really good and important to preserve a distinctive identity. But I guess if you care as I do about cohesion and forming a national community and getting away from caste and getting away from that kind of cultural segregation, there are some big benefits to having that kind of intermingling. Yeah. And when you have a very big underclass of people concentrated in the bottom third of society who don't have social relationships yeah. with people from different backgrounds, that strikes me as dangerous I and it'll get more I, dangerous. I, I, I agree with that. I don't I, – I don't think it 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 uh, obviates the need for um, you know the educational opportunities and uh, oh the absolutely kind of, the kind of skills that that help people lift uh, themselves up and that's something that we have to let me because I, I don't want the time to go away of without course, covering a, a few other things um, you know you mentioned before that you had never met pro life people before you went to high school and then uh, on from there this this seems to me a debate that's particularly fraught where people on both sides um, have really, really fundamental uh, views. And there's, and when most Americans are sort of in the middle of this uh, debate, they're, they, they, they're uncomfortable uh, with uh, abortion, but they feel like it should be uh, up to the, up to a point up to the uh, the mother, the doctor, and so on, to make these decisions. Um, how how do you overcome that? Well, like many conservatives, I believe that we would be much better off had we decided uh, some of these contentious issues, let's say at the state level. Uh, so that you know, Democratic majorities could work through them and then uh, reach a conclusion that reflects the kind of sensibilities of the place. This is actually what you saw happen in most of Western Europe. Marianne Glendon, uh, professor at Harvard Law School, um, is a really interesting person because she's a, she's a pro-life liberal Catholic. Uh, and she's done a lot of interesting work looking at how that consensus wound up being reflected in law. And what you find is that abortion laws in much of Western Europe uh, are actually, you know, quite different from what we have in the United States uh, in that they actually reflect that cultural consensus more and some of those sensitivities uh, that people who, you know, are concerned uh, about abortion have. Um, And I guess more broadly about the cultural question, you know, Abortion is an interesting issue because that's an issue where, you know, on lots of issues, younger people are far more socially liberal than older people, whereas abortion is an issue where actually there's been much more consistency um, and younger people are somewhat more likely to be pro-life than they are to have other socially liberal views. Um, And 
you know, I guess my view is that you're not going to get to some overwhelming consensus on this, but there are some questions about the Although political strategy. Although there is, there is, there. I think the consensus is what I described. I don't think the consensus goes runs to uh, absolutism on either side of the debate, and that's been pretty consistent. I think that's true, and that's why when you're looking at the pro-life movement, they've achieved their greatest successes when they have focused on particular practices that you know, kind of uh, a majority of people uh, are concerned about. Uh, and I guess when I what is your about, what t- tell me what your personal view is? Uh, you know, this is not an issue I write about as often as I ought to. Uh, it's an issue where I know a lot of smart, thoughtful, intelligent people on both sides of the issue. Uh, And also, perhaps because I grew up in New York City, I have a sense of how um, determined and dedicated people are on one extreme of this debate, I'll say. Uh, So I guess I know people on both extremes of this debate. Look, there. we just had a guy who shot up a Planned Parenthood office. So there are – this is a very, very – you know, galvanizing and issue there. Although so we, we, I haven't, have, I haven't, have I haven't seen, actually, I haven't seen. We I ha- have to go back. I actually don't know that much about the details of the shooting. I wasn't no, and I'm not I, sure and that's that, a Planned Parenthood facility. But, but, you know, there, there's been an awful lot of violence thing, around some of, uh, some of this. And it, most of it emanates from, and I'm not, I mean, just making an observation, it, most of that violence it, emanates from the... If you're pro-life, I suppose you don't necessarily... Uh, David, I guess I see this differently. Uh, my view is that we would be much better off if we had something like the European consensus where this is coming out of democratic deliberation. If, if we uh, did what you said, Jed, wouldn't we have a patchwork here where uh, in red America, peop- uh, women... Would wouldn't be would essentially not have the same uh, services available to them, the same options as people who live in blue America. Isn't that isn't that what would happen? It is a there's a law professor here, Will Bode, who's made a, a broadly similar argument. I do think you would need some federal settlement in place that would relate to you know for example the ability to travel you know etc to to have an abortion uh, i think that you know that would be important you need to have some kind of framework in which you know different state laws uh, could work but we have a patchwork of state laws in many different domains uh, and also you know even now you have differences in terms of the way that abortion is regulated from one place to another i don't think that it would be a disaster uh, and if anything i think that you know you That's would not come a to- strong endorsement it wouldn't be a disaster It would be better than not a disaster, David, because I think that if you have people embracing a consensus and if you have people who believe that actually their input and actually the democratic process was at work, I think you would have had very different politics around this issue. Um, and, you know, if, even if you're looking, you know, back to the early 80s, you know, Bill Clinton uh, is someone who kind of experienced this in his own state in Arkansas. There are a lot of quirky coalitions, the kind of big positions on these issues mask a lot of more complicated, nuanced views that a lot of people have. And I guess, you know, we might disagree about this, but I believe that the democratic process working, um, you know, in a federal state by state kind of way could have led to an outcome and can still lead to an outcome in which people feel a greater sense of ownership uh, of what these rules are. And they also have hope. They feel that actually, you know, I can change this over time through persuasion. But, you know, how do you decide, though, what what when, especially when you're dealing with things that involve rights, how do you decide uh, which things you're going to you're going to uh, consign to the democratic process, state by state, and which are fundamental uh, 
issues of rights to people as Americans. Well, and and one, isn't that the courts? One, isn't one, that up to the courts? One view do- is that you look to the Constitution, but of course, you know, I would argue that the Constitution does not express a settled view on the regulation of abortion. You know, this is um, an honest debate a lot of people have. John Hart Ely, a great, you know, liberal legal scholar, um, made this case in the 1970s. Uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with that argument. Uh, you know, it may well be that, you know, a lot of people find, um, you know, Roe v. Wade, the kind of um, the kind of philosophical underpinnings of it sound and attractive. Uh, it's not obvious to me that it was part of our constitutional settlement. Um but, you know, again, I'm not a constitutional law scholar. This is not really my area. We, but, you know, what I will say about the politics of social conservatism and, and how to think about this, you know, I guess my view is that social, cultural conservatives um, need to recognize that they are not a majority of the society. Uh, they need to recognize that in order to achieve their objectives, they need to, uh, you know, make their style of life, the things they care about most, attractive to other people and win converts over time. These issues are not, in my view, primarily political issues. They're really issues about how people live. And I think in a funny way, our culture wars debates have become all about sex, the regulation of sex, same-sex marriage, abortion, etc. And in a way, when you're thinking about what social conservatives care about, they care about family life, they care about community, they care about uh, revitalizing civil society, they care about things. Um, and from their perspective, and, and again, you know, I know lots of people disagree with it, but from their perspective, they're like, well, look, you know, we were, you know, kind of, it just then Roe v. Wade happened, or then this other thing happened, or then, you know, kind of, you know, we kind of were comfortable with this kind of consensus. So, right. you know, these are the political debates we've been right. called to join. Right. Uh, and, you know, that's not necessarily the things that we want to talk about or argue about. And I guess I would want a society in which, you know, social and conser- cultural conservatives are kind of focused a bit more about, you know, their lo- long-term goals of conversion and revitalizing the society. The, um, uh, just to add from a liberal mm-hmm. perspective, I, I, I wish that uh, there were people on the left who were uh, more uh, understanding of the fact that there are a lot of people for whom, out of, a, out of religious conviction or other conviction, really see this in a whole different light and see abortion as, as murder. And, uh, and if you see it from that standpoint, it leads you to a whole... You know, a, a whole different place. That doesn't mean you have to accept that view. Um, but uh, if this weren't in the middle of a political debate and we could have an honest discussion, there are probably there are probably things that both sides can learn. And I think it leads you to that consensus. That is the consensus in the middle. Mm-hmm. But we, we, we could do a whole, as you mentioned before, every single thing we're talking about, we could do a whole podcast on. I want to finish... By asking you, though, about the state of the Republican Party, we're in the middle of a presidential race. Um, You're a guy who's written a lot about um, the changing nature of the country. Uh, Are you concerned about the tone of the Republican debate, Trumpism, and the reaction to Trump? Uh, And from a conservative perspective, what, uh, what, what it may do in terms of the ability to elect a conservative in 2016? I am very concerned about the tone of the candidates who believe that if you support limiting immigration, let's say you're necessarily a bigot. Uh, I'm concerned about the tone of Republicans who are so skeptical towards and hostile towards um, populism, uh, 
partly because, you know, look, there are a lot of Americans, including a lot of Republicans, who do not have a lot of faith in our leadership, who do not have faith in the people who've been, you know, running the Republican Party, running our government for a very long time. And I guess, you know, there are a lot of people who are talking about the A lot of those of folks guy. who are supporting Trump, I, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you, are, in fact, uh, uh, non-college educated whites who have very much been impacted by the changes in the economy. They're also and, disproportionately moderates, which is something that people don't know. I mean, they're disproportionately self-identified moderates among Republicans. Uh, so, you know, there's this perception that Trump represents the hard right of the Republican Party, when in fact, you know, Trump is the guy who's saying that, hey, like, you know, I don't I don't belong to the billionaires or whatever else. You know, he's the guy who's, you know, saying that, you know, when it comes to tax policy, uh, even though his actual tax plan, in my opinion, is completely silly um, and counterproductive, but he's the kind of guy who's been making some of these more populist noises. Uh, and my issue is that the Republicans who want to— Do you think his nativism is helpful? I uh, mean, when he says that he saw a thousand, a thousand Muslims uh, cheering, uh, the phantom Muslim cheering Muslims— Here's what I think. —in Jersey, here's what does I think. that help? I think that if other mainstream candidates don't address legitimate concerns— about immigration, immigration policy, then you're when there's one person who talks about it in an inflammatory, incendiary, in many ways, extremely counterproductive way, then, you know, that, that's what you're going to get. And my issue is that there are lots of Republicans, Republican elites, who spend a lot of their time around donors who have, in my view, a very narrow-minded, very blinkered perspective on immigration. And so basically you have one guy who's speaking in this way that I'll bet a lot of his supporters, you know, kind of, they're not, you know, kind of for exact the way that he talks about it. No, no. But if you had I, other I, Republicans— I, I can see that. But his you, supporters are basically a, a, if you had, no more than a third of the Republican electorate. When, who knows? I mean, kind of we'll see what happens as, as more people drop out. I mean, but my view is that if other Republicans— got out of their kind of blinkered, kind of narrow little world where they're only speaking to other people who share the views of, let's say, the Wall Street Journal editorial page or kind of, you know, lots of other voices on these issues, they might be able to craft a more responsible, humane, thoughtful way of talking about these issues that, by the way, speak, you know, if you stopped immigration tomorrow, you stop it zero, completely stop it tomorrow, we would become a majority-minority country. Because if you're looking at people right. under the age of 18, so look, this is not about race. And maybe some of some supporters of Trump might believe that. That's It's not actually about that. And my be belief is that if you actually had Republicans who are thoughtful, sensible, and actually address these legitimate concerns rather than just purely dismissing them as the concerns of yahoos, you wouldn't have had this situation now. You wouldn't have had this panic that a lot of other Republicans have now. Can the Republican Party win with a Donald Trump? I do know. I do not believe that Donald Trump can win. I do believe that, you know, he might, um, you know, prove somewhat surprising. Who knows? I mean, that's frankly such an exotic You're outcome. a Rubio guy, right? Uh, I don't endorse candidates. Uh, I will say that uh, Marco Rubio... Uh, is a very smart, thoughtful guy who has a lot going for him. I will also say now that if you look at Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz is the first candidate to have really released a serious, comprehensive immigration agenda that is in line with those who believe that we ought to uh, reduce immigration somewhat. We ought to have a more high-skilled oriented policy. And Ted Cruz, um, you know, I disagree with him on many things. Uh, you know, Ted Cruz is someone whose tactics on the Affordable Care Act and many other issues I disagree with quite, quite strongly. Uh, but, you know, I'd say that 
Rubio and Cruz are two candidates who are doing things that the other so-called mainstream or other kind of elected uh, candidates with elected experience haven't been doing. So I, I'd, you know, I find it very likely that they're going to play a very big role in the race going forward. My view is though they, they, you see, I think Trump is capped. This is my view. Uh, and he's capped between 20 and 30. I don't think he's going to grow much beyond that, even as the field narrows. But I think those guys could. And you're going to end up after New Hampshire with a much smaller field. And they're, they're almost certainly going to be in that field. And this race could end up after March 15th, when all the contests become winner take all, a race between not Trump, but between Cruz and Rubio. That seems to me a, uh, a, a you know, as much as you can know yeah. these things, that seems like a reasonable scenario here. Well, Cruz has a huge advantage, which is, you know, we had an article in National Review Online, very smart article by this guy named Lawrence Brinton. It's actually a pseudonym. But he was looking at the um, campaign filings. And he basically, he offered this theory that if you're looking, if a candidate is getting money from big donors and small donors in a good balance. That's a very good sign. It turns out that Jeb Bush in that particular quarter received very little money from small donors and a lot of hard money from big donors. Whereas Ted Cruz, he was very balanced, getting that small dollar money and also the big dollar money, which which struck me as intriguing. I have a question for you, however, which is this. Oh, I'm sorry. We're out of time. Yeah, go (laughs) ahead. So uh, when I look at these different scenarios, how they might play out, I often think about 2004 when you had Dick Gephardt um, you know, in a rough spot, uh, but he decided to really go guns blazing and run hard against Howard Dean um, before Iowa. And then you see both Gephardt and Dean yeah, really so suffer from those attacks. Yeah, it was kind of a suicide bombing there. And I wonder if something similar might happen, because the argument in 2004 is just this idea that, well, you know, Kerry wasn't necessarily the first love of that many Democratic voters, but people thought he's plausible, he has a compelling biography, you know. So it's kind of people catching up, kind of voters becoming political pundits. But I wonder uh, about your... Well, I think it's an interesting analogy, because I think you you see uh, Bush, to some degree, Kasich... Uh, very strongly going after Donald Trump. They haven't really benefited from it. And you could argue in Bush's case that taking on Trump only accentuated some of his uh, vulnerabilities as a candidate. But they have inflicted some damage on Trump by focusing on, you know, some of the more objectionable, uh, broadly objectionable aspects of his candidacy. Cruz and Rubio, uh, Rubio's had some dust-ups with Trump, but he's been very judicious about how he engaged. Cruz, until recently, has not engaged with Trump at all. And uh, so they've had a, a much a cagier strategy uh, in terms of dealing uh, with Trump. And it may be that Kasich and, um, and, and Bush uh, have done some work. By the way, Christie has also tried to avoid Trump. I think he's recognized, let other people do that work. I think he made a mistake when Trump attacked New Jersey and people in New Jersey uh, around the 9-11 thing. I think he should have been more vocal on that. He's kind of taken a powder on that. But uh, I do think that uh, it could be that the people who have inflicted damage on Trump will not be the beneficiaries uh, of that, just as Gephardt wasn't the beneficiary in going after Dean and John Kerry uh, ended up uh, winning that primary. Uh, so it's a, it's an interesting analogy. Listen, you are a smart dude, and we, we are so happy to have had you at the Institute of Politics here. But I hope that you and I can have 
a bunch of conversations going forward, not just because we're Stuyvesant alumni, but because <laughs> you, you, you're a thoughtful guy and uh, we ought to have more dialogue, not less. Thank you very much, David. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.